following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. Um, we're starting this long journey, of course, in the Gospel of Luke. Long, long journey. I set that out about three weeks ago. This is message number three today. Um, at least in my Bible, we get to turn the page uh, as part of this. So that's good, right? Progress? Amen. All right. I'm done with all of that. What impossible thing, what impossible thing do you wish would happen in your life? I'm just kind of think about that. This, I think this is impossible. I would really want that in my life. When it comes to uh, seeing the impossible happen in our lives and even defining what that exactly means. What does it mean when we talk about, I want this, but I think it's impossible. I really think we have two problems when it comes to even kind of locking in what we mean by all of that. Problem number one, uh, we call things impossible that are not actually impossible. Here's what I I really mean by that. I, I really believe that some things that we think are impossible with ingenuity, with time, with effort, with determination... We can actually accomplish these things. It's not possible right now, and that's what we mean by impossible. It seems to be impossible right now, but given enough time, if we're smart enough, if we really apply ourselves to this, we can actually accomplish this. I, I, I did what every good preacher does in, in researching. I, I went to Google to kind of figure out solid quotes on impossible things. And uh, of course, you know, all these great little sound bites from all these people in history, and I found out that Napoleon, you know who he is, right? Napoleon, uh, Bonaparte, and Voltaire, the great philosopher and writer, and Alexander the Great, the Greek conqueror, that great man, Tommy Lasorda, (laughs) L.A. Dodgers baseball coach, the great... Uh, the great uh, rocket scientist, yes, he's actually a rocket sci- scientist, Werner von Braun, and, um, and Vince Lombardi, great football coach. These, these great people from history, they all have these amazing quotes online. I'm not even going to share them with you. You can go online and figure out what they said about impossible things. They all talked about impossible things, and every one of them achieved the things they talked about. They talked about building rockets at a time when there were no rockets. They talked about conquering empires and building greater, greater empires than the world uh, had seen. They, they talked about winning championships. And every year someone wins the championship. So clearly that's not impossible. I mean, they talk about impossibilities. But in reality, what we find out is if you're just determined enough and smart enough and apply yourself enough, you can actually achieve these things. And so I come back to the point. We call things impossible and they're not in fact impossible. They're just hard. They're just hard things. But if we have the right leadership and the right resources, they can be possible. Here's problem number two. And this applies more narrowly now to those of us who are actually followers of Jesus Christ. Because we read of God doing impossible things in the word of God, true? We read of God doing impossible things in the word of God, but we don't actually believe God will do truly impossible things today. 
We discount his ability. We discount perhaps his willingness to accomplish impossible things in our day. And yet he has done and continues to do impossible things right here in the midst of this church body. God is doing the impossible. Fulfilling his word in a way that no human being could ever do. These things are impossible for us, but they're possible with God. The question then is, do we see it when God does the impossible? Are we noticing it? Are we experiencing impossible things for ourselves? That's what we're going to look at today. What does it look like when God does the impossible? So I'm going to read the text as we work through it today. It's a pretty familiar narrative of Gabriel showing up to talk to Mary about doing a pretty impossible thing. And uh, we're going to take some great lessons off of that here today. So why don't I pray and then we'll get into God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I'm, I'm grateful for all that we've experienced already today. You're so good to us. We don't want to forget that, neglect it in any way. And as we listen to your word right now, Father, we need you to teach us. No doubt there's some people in this room that need to be encouraged. They're, uh, they're sad, they're burdened. Your word needs to build them up today. God, there's more than a few of us here with rebellion in our hearts. We resist the truth of your word, and I pray, God, that you would challenge us today. And I pray, God, in all these things, that you would intervene in our lives to do the impossible in our lives, to meet us right where we are, to alter our course, to change what needs to be changed, to speak a word into our lives that we need. And God, I love the fact that you can do that for each of us as individuals and that you do it for us corporately as a church. Help us to listen, to hear your voice today. We, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, when God does the impossible, it is first of all a work of his grace to overcome my fear. God doing the impossible is a work of his grace to overcome fear in my life. And for the second time in this uh, kind of just this opening part of Luke's gospel, uh, we have an angel showing up to deliver a message. Let's start in verse 26. In the sixth month, the sixth month of what? Who can remember from last week what we were talking about? It's Elizabeth's pregnancy. The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name uh, was Mary. Now, beside these verses, this is uh, from your English lit classes. This is the uh, setting. This is the, uh, the, the list of players. This is the date and time. This is the situation that uh, is being set up for us. We just get all the information we need to make the rest of the story make sense. So it's all set up for us here. And uh, this angel comes and says, verse 28 now, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord 
is with you. He just says this to Mary. Greetings, O favored one. Uh, The Lord is with you. And Mary, uh, her reaction is this. Verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying. Notice that she's not, I mean, the text tells us here, we've made a, a big deal about uh, the reality that when angels show up, we tend to be afraid. And it seems to be, at least initially here in the text, that she's not terribly afraid of the angel himself, um, but she is afraid or she's perplexed or greatly troubled at what the angel says. That's what the text says here. But she was greatly troubled or perplexed or confused by the saying. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She's trying to think it through. Now understand, Mary, by this point in her life, she's a virgin. It was normal for maybe even older men to marry younger women, to be betrothed to them. And there's every likelihood that Mary was very young, like in her teenage years. And and so she's not really savvy on the ways of the world. Uh, She's a resident of a village, it, it was common for women really just to stay in their village. They didn't travel very much at all in those days. And so she would have been living this very provincial, very backwater, a very kind of sheltered existence. This young teenage girl, not savvy in the ways of the world, growing up in small town Galilee. And an angel shows up and says that your favor, God's with you. She's confused by that. She's trying to figure out what he's talking about. And so keep that in your mind there, this confusion that she has here. She's greatly troubled by it. But she has at least enough savvy to know this. And tell me if this wouldn't be true of you. If an angel shows up in your house and begins kind of buttering you up, something's coming next, correct? She's smart enough to know that this isn't just a casual drop-by. And you know the difference if it happens to you. If your doorbell rings and you open the door and a police officer is standing there, he's not just stopping by for coffee, correct? I mean, there's a point to him being there. I mean, if if your doorbell rings and you go to the door and the publisher's clearinghouse guy is there... He's not just coming by to say hello. He's got a check for you. Something big is happening. And Mary gets this. She's trying to figure out exactly what this is going to mean for her. Something's up. And Gabriel says to her, and this is where you get a little bit more of the sense that she too was more than perplexed with the saying, but also fearful of the angel himself like everyone else is. Because then he comes back and he says to her in verse 30 now, The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. Uh, Don't be afraid. And he uses that traditional word for fear, phobos, um, from which we get the English word phobia. This is a deep fear. I mean, I think she's fearful of what's been said. She's fearful of the fact that an angel just showed up at her house. I mean, I think we could stack up a lot of things here uh, in Mary's uh, defense. And uh, he says to her, don't be afraid, Don't be afraid, for you have found favor from God. God's grace, his favor, is going to be poured out, is being poured out in your life. 
Now, why does this keep happening? These angel apparitions, these angels that show up and people are afraid. And I hope we understand that if it was to happen to us, we would be in the very same situation. We would be afraid. Why all the fear around what God would say and and how it would be said and how it's delivered to us? You see, the reality is we are alienated from our God. We understand that. That the perfect situation that was created for us in the Garden of Eden, when we had perfect fellowship with our God, nothing came between us that was severed by our sin. And so there is this alienation that exists between us and our God. And so while we know there's no reasonable explanation for why we, as God's special created beings, should ever be fearful of an angel, we shouldn't be. Yeah, we are. Time and again in the scriptures, we see how humanity is just fearful in the face of this created being who was actually created to serve both God and us. Why are we afraid of these angels? It's because of this distance. It's because of this alienation between us and our God. And so it causes fear. See, we live and we're more comfortable in the natural world. We're more comfortable with the things that we can see and the things that we can hear and the things that we can taste and feel, the things that we can experience for ourselves. That's the natural world. We're very comfortable in the natural world. But when the supernatural world breaks into our lives, we're fearful of that. We fear any time God breaks into our world because we ask the question, as Mary is asking it here, what's this going to mean for me? What are you asking me to do? What's going to have to change, God? You should be afraid of that every Sunday morning. If I get to harvest this week and I sit down and and we get God's word open and, and I start hearing it preached. There should be a little bit of fear in every one of us. It's God's going to ask us. God's going to meet us. He's going to break into our worlds and he's going to ask us to do something that requires something greater than we're really willing to give. Mary's wondering what kind of saying this is because she understands that something's coming. And it's not going to be a small thing if an angel shows up to deliver the message. Our sin makes encounters with God in any realm, whether it's with an angel or with his word, whether it's here on Sunday morning or in your personal time with him. When the supernatural breaks in through his word and he starts delivering it to our hearts, that ought to be a fearful thing. Because we will have no idea where God might lead us, where he might want to take us. See, not everybody sees change as a positive. Some of us see it as a negative. I I like my life the way it is. I don't want things to change. Some of you will wrestle, as I do, with full surrender to God. 
because you fear that God might ask you to do something that you're not willing to do. He might ask you to give up something you're not willing to give up. He might ask you to go somewhere you don't want to go. He might ask you to speak to someone that you don't want to speak to. He might ask you to give something you don't want to give. So we fear being confronted with these truths and it's appropriate because he's awesome. And when we really encounter him, he lays us flat out. His grace then gets poured out in our, in our lives. And this is how the angel brings Mary to a place where she can no longer be perplexed about these things, no longer be in fear. His grace can overcome all of this. Grace is his unearned and undeserved favor in our lives. What's interesting about the description of Mary here is we, we, have, we have no background on her to say that she deserved anything that she got here. Unlike the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we know that they were faithful, they were pursuing the Lord, they were continuing to serve Him, they were about the Word of God, they were eager to obey Him in every way, despite the disappointments in their lives. They were faithful, 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 proven people. And so God chose them and gave them a child called John who would be the forerunner to Messiah. But with Mary, we have none of that. We don't know if she was faithful. We don't know if she was a true to her God. We don't know any of these things. We can uh, suppose that she was. But all we know about her is she was in her house that day when an angel showed up and said that she had God's grace, undeserved, unearned. God's favor, God just, it's Mary. Not based on any criteria, but great news for us, right? God chooses us, he works in us, he does uh, great things in our lives, not because of anything we do, not because of anything we've earned, not because of anything that we think that's in us that would cause God to catch our attention, none of that. It's grace. Free gift based on nothing we could ever possibly do for it. God doing the impossible. When he does this, it's a work of his grace to undeserving people. See, that is the impossibility. That God would choose me. It's also a move of his son to overcome my autonomy. It's God doing the impossible. A move of his son, Jesus Christ, to overcome my autonomy. Now, the word autonomy, if you don't use it every day, means my independence. This is me saying that I'm in charge of my life. This is a cornerstone of Western philosophy, it's the cornerstone of our constitution here in Canada. The rights of the individual. I am my own person. I chart my own path. I did it my way. Is the anthem of those who believe in this. And Jesus Christ came into this world impossible. With an impossible plan. Jesus Christ came into this world to crush 
our autonomy, our independence. Gabriel settles Mary down with those words in verse 30, and then he shares the plan. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, already twice in the account, we've we found out that she was a virgin. She never had sex with a man. She wasn't married. Yet, she was betrothed or legally pledged, a little more than engagement, legally pledged to this man named Joseph. But they had not had any sexual relationships either. She, she was a virgin. And we'll all agree here that this is kind of the core issue when we start talking about impossible things in this passage. That it is impossible for a virgin to conceive. That's exactly what Gabriel says is the plan. Then we have these first descriptors of who this Jesus is to be. I love this description of him. We have his name. He's going to be called Jesus, verse 32 and 33. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. These are the first New Testament words concerning Jesus Christ. Four things that we learn about him here, if you're uh, taking notes, jot these down. First of all, he's great. It says in the passage, he will be great. And this greatness is inherent to who he is. It's meant to uh, distinguish him from anyone else, to distinguish him from any other person who will ever live on the planet. He's great. And if you follow along in Luke's gospel, it's always a good idea to study verses in the gospel in contrast to other verses in the same gospel. What's Luke really talking about? Later on in chapter 22, we find out that true greatness is servanthood. And there is no greater servant in the world than Jesus Christ. The impossible, impossible thing about our God in contrast to every other God is that this is a God who's uh, going to come and actually serve humanity. Not just demanding obedience, but coming to pour out his life as a sacrifice for us. He's great in that way, in an impossible way. Secondly, he's God. He's called the Son of the Most High. This is a clear claim on divinity. He's fully God, yet he's going to be born as a man, so he's fully man. The mystery of Jesus Christ is that he is fully God and fully man. This is a statement of his divinities. Thirdly, he's king. God's going to give to him the throne of his father, David. He's going to be the fulfillment of all the covenant promises. He's going to rule over the nation of Israel and, in fact, over the entire world. Here we're finding out some great things about Jesus Christ. Number four, he's going to be there on that throne forever. He will reign forever of his kingdom. There'll be no end. All of this seems pretty impossible. It's being delivered to this young girl in this small village in Galilee. It seems so impossible. This is the first indication we're getting that this isn't just some 
earthly ruler who's going to come and liberate Israel from their Roman occupiers. It's much greater than that. It's more wide-sweeping. And you think about who Jesus is here, and then you just simply have to ask the question, if that's who Jesus is, then who are we? Again, we're trying to chip away at this notion that we're autonomous, that we make our own way in the world. As long as we think we're in control of anything, we'll fail to see God in all His fullness and His plan for us. As long as we think that we're all that and we call the shots, we're never going to let God call the shots in our, in our lives and think of Him as the awesome God that He is. Now for sure this applies to those in the room who have not yet surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. If you're not in a relationship with Him, if, if you haven't confessed your sin and declared Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior of your life, then now's the time to get that done. Surrender your life to Him. But for those in the room who are followers of Jesus Christ, we made that decision already. Just think about all these small rebellions that we hold in our hearts. All the little places where, where even though we declare Jesus to be Lord of our lives, we just hold back all these things. I'm not giving that up. No, I've heard the sermons. I've read the Bible. I know what God says about that. I'm not giving that up. I like that sin. I like that part of me. I don't want to give that up. I'm hanging on to it. So we keep for ourselves some autonomy from our God while singing to Him that He's Lord of our lives. Is Jesus your King or not? I mean, He is your King whether you acknowledge Him or not and someday will come when you the day will come when you will bow before him. How much better to bow before him now and surrender our autonomy and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior of our lives. I mean, to me, this is the, the greatest among all the impossibilities that God does. The greatest impossibility was made possible by God's great love for us. When, when Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, that's what we're asking you to believe. That's, that's what every one of us has to see in our own lives. You want to talk about impossibilities and surrendering ourselves to Christ. The greatest impossibility was made possible when from the cross, Jesus Christ said, Father, forgive them. You're starting to get an understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about impossibilities being accomplished in our midst. But we're never going to get to enjoy that. We're never going to be able to see those things alive in our own lives unless we allow Jesus Christ to overcome our autonomy. He is great. You're not. He is God. And you're not. He's the king. And you're not. And his kingdom will go on forever and ever. And you can be a part of it.
is going to take you surrendering your autonomy to him. When God does the impossible, it's a move of his son to overcome our autonomy. And then this, it's also a miracle of his spirit to overcome our self-sufficiency. A miracle of his spirit. The narrative goes on, verse 34 now. Mary said to the angel, so all of this has been delivered. She knows that she's going to have a baby. His name is going to be Jesus. She finds out some things about him. And then Mary says to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. You remember that uh, Zechariah asked a very similar question last week. Remember this? He said, like, "Ah, how's this supposed to happen? But his question was filled with doubt. Zechariah didn't believe it was going to happen. And he's pushing back on Gabriel to say, yeah, this can't happen, by the way. Do you know anything about me and Elizabeth? It's all filled with doubt and unbelief. But Mary's question comes out of a sincere desire to know. Mary's question is filled with faith. Okay, okay. I hear what you're saying. I know I'm going to have a baby. That's fantastic. But I'm young and naive. Could you help me understand how exactly this is going to happen? Now, we might presume, and I hope this isn't inappropriate, I hope that we would presume here that that Mary's mom had had the talk with her. You know what I'm talking about? The talk? Just nod your head. You still with me? The talk? Parents here with teenagers beside them are a little uncomfortable right now. I get it. Okay, but but let's just assume that that Mary's mom has had the talk with her because she is betrothed to be married and and so maybe her mom just wanted her to know certain things about what was going to happen on the wedding night. And so she had had the chat with her. And so Mary's sitting there. She kind of has some knowledge now about what, what's supposed to happen here when you get pregnant. And so she's genuinely wondering. She's a young girl who's never had sex. And she's wondering now because she's just found out you're going to be pregnant. How is this going to happen? Good question. Great question. She's just genuine inquiry. That's all this is. Gabriel answers her. I'm not entirely sure that this is a satisfying answer. You know what I'm saying? So he says to her, and this is all we have. The angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's the answer. The idea here is, is like, um, like fog rolling in. This idea of, of, of overshadowing her or of a blanket being thrown over something. That's, that's the idea here. And, and at least Mary was finding out here that what was not going to be involved here was any kind of sexual encounter, physical sexual encounter was not going to be part of this at all. In fact, no human male would be part of this in any respect whatsoever. That it would just be the Holy Spirit in some mysterious way that we don't have recorded for us. In some mysterious way, the Holy Spirit is just going to overshadow her. That's it. That's all we have. 
It's a supernatural, this is what we can take away from it, it's a supernatural conception. It's not a natural conception in any respect. Then he throws this on, though she didn't ask for it. And again, in sharp contrast to Zechariah, who asked for a sign. How's this going to happen? Show me a sign. Prove to me that this is true. Mary doesn't ask for that at all, and yet Gabriel gives her a sign. Notice it in verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. Mary didn't know about this, and we know from the, from the previous passage that Elizabeth kept herself hidden during her pregnancy. Mary didn't know she was pregnant. Your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. That's the sign. Mary, not only is this going to happen to you, but it's, it's already happened to your relative Elizabeth. Uh, she's already pregnant. She's six months pregnant. Uh, what a wonderful a confirmation uh, that is for her. And then Gabriel adds this little teaching point. Do you have your pens ready? Or if you're using a smartphone or iPad Bible, you're going to highlight this right now. For nothing will be impossible with God. That's the teaching point. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now, here's my concern with that phrase. Can I express my concerns with that phrase? I realize that it's a line from the Bible, so I shouldn't have concerns about it. But it's always dangerous when we take a line out of the Bible and just begin applying it willy-nilly wherever we want, arbitrarily applying this. What a great line. Let's pull that out. And all of a sudden, you know, like Tony Robbins is using it in some kind of motivational type speech. Nothing is impossible if you're with God. And we get all fired up with that. And we start conjuring up all the things that we think are impossible that God would accomplish for us. Or a line like this gets ripped out and Hallmark slaps it onto a graduation card. And all of a sudden we've reduced the power of this, this teaching that Gabriel gives us here to some kind of you can do it moment. If only you have enough faith, you can do it. Just trust in God. And the big concern I have with this is that we decide what God wants to do and then we make that impossible situation something that he wants to accomplish in our lives. The problem lies in us making the determination of what the situation is, what the impossibility is. God's the one who needs to define these things, true? God needs to define these things. God needs to define what he's doing. And what's really being said here is not so much that this thing is impossible. It's not so much the virgin birth. It's actually a a greater application of what the angel is saying. It would be more correct to actually translate it this way. It's all about what he says. It's all about the word that Gabriel is delivering. The verse should read, nothing God says will be impossible to him. Nothing God says will be impossible to him. Now, why is that so perfect for us? Because now we can't just take the phrase and apply it to whatever situation we want. It's going to be rooted completely in his word and in his will. I'm not just inventing impossible situations. It's what God says. That's the thing that's not impossible. Everything God states or proclaims, he will also perform. God's word determines what's possible or not. 
That means that I'm not the standard or the definition for any of it. My self-sufficiency, my strength is pathetic next to what God wants to do. I need to see the thing God wants to do that's impossible. My part is just to surrender to that. I think we just, we can have a tendency to really trivialize the impossible. And we make it something that really is impossible. And then we try to credit God with somehow giving us strength for that. The impossible is not what we want, but what God wills. And God does the impossible. The truly impossible. God does the truly impossible to remind us that we are not him. My self-sufficiency leaves me looking pretty pathetic next to that. And so all in favor of not being God, amen? All in favor of not being God and allowing God to be God and do the impossible things that he wants to accomplish by his will. That's what we see in Mary. And so finally this, as God does the impossible, it is an act of his will to overcome my self-centeredness. I need to get away from myself in all of this. Verse 38 is so powerful to me. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever God wants to do, our best play is always submission to his will. Submission by his servants, that's at the core of what God wants to do in this world. Because God has chosen, I don't understand why sometimes, I don't understand why most of the time, God chooses to work through us. I'm very confused about why he chooses to work through me at all. Hopefully you're in that place too. But God has chosen to work through frail, sinful humanity. And we know that God's plans will never be thwarted by a stubborn heart. And so God's pressing every person in the room right now. God's will will never be thwarted. Do we agree? His will will never be thwarted. However, whether or not you're part of it depends on whether your heart is stubborn or submissive to his will. I mean, God's making an offer. God's Holy Spirit is working in this room right now. Do you want to be part of my will? Do you want to be a part of impossible things that are going to happen by my strength and my power? Do you want to see my glory? God's making the offer to every person in the room. The stubborn will walk away and go, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good, thank you. But those who are submissive to his will, God will use. And God will do powerful things through their lives. Strictly out of obedience. Will I be blessed to be used by God in the fulfillment of his purposes? Will I bring him glory? Or will I entrench myself with a stubborn, self-centered heart to simply be a bystander to the great acts of God? That's the decision that, that each person in the room is facing right now. Let me make the point in an even greater way. Look back at Mary's line again. 
Behold, all of your translations say this, behold, I am the, what's the word? Servant. But the actual word is what in the original language? It's, it's doulos. It's slave. Servant to me is a bit sanitized, isn't it? It still sounds somewhat voluntary. It still sounds like I can opt in or opt out. Yeah, I'm serving Jesus. I'm, I'm a servant of Jesus. I serve him. I serve. Slave sounds a little more permanent, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit more like I've, I've laid it all out there and, I, and I'm not free to go. Slave makes it sound completely like I'm all in for Jesus Christ. That's what Mary says to Gabriel. I am the slave of the Lord. I'm going to do whatever I can to show my devotion. I'm going to be all in for him. All of my love for him. It is such a picture of complete humility before the Lord. There's no shred of pride here. There's no sense of any self-centeredness. Or what about my life? And you have to understand that she is already grasping the implications of being pregnant. Apart from being married. She already had to think about that. There's no objections. There's no... But Gabriel, people are going to trash my reputation. Like, I'm not married. Don't you know what it's like out there? Didn't you know what people in this small village are going to think of me? Nothing. I'm a slave to God. He's got all of me. There's not a single part that I'm holding back. There's no self-centeredness here. See, there's something there that seems impossible to me whenever it happens. This to me is at the core of what's truly impossible. The impossible thing that happens every Sunday as we gather together here. That God would bring a man or a woman to surrender his or her pride. And humble themselves. To simply say, yes, Lord. I'm your slave. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Tell me that's not more impossible than anything you started thinking about at the beginning of this message. That no matter what, we would be surrendered to him. The self-centeredness of men and women is an impossible obstacle that can over be, only be overcome by the power of God in our lives. And when we humble ourselves and allow that work in our lives, many other impossibilities become possible for us. And all it really takes is this. That what would come out of our hearts and out of our mouths would be those very words of Mary. Behold, I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray. I just want you to take a moment in silent prayer. And if it's helpful for you to look up at the screen at that last phrase, 
put that up again. To say those words, you and the Lord, that's it. Just for you to say those words to the Lord, I'll give you a few moments. And then I'll pray. Father, I thank you for the prayer of Mary, for the example of her life. This young girl who uh, models for us complete surrender, and I pray, God, that you would find nothing in this church but the same. That every one of us would be committed to saying, making the declaration in the same way that she did. We're your slaves. Whatever you want for us, you can bring about. And God, through that, I pray that we would see you do amazing, incredible, awesome, impossible things in our midst. Father, accomplish your will. Wreck our pride. Make us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, who is indeed great. And in his strong name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We pray that today's message was encouraging and challenging. For more info about Harvest Bible Chapel, check us out online at harvestberry.ca. Thanks again, and remember, you are loved.